Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Azariah was 18 years old when Captain James Allen came seeking recruits from among the Latter-day Saints to march with the battalion to join the war with Mexico. Now, it's a long story, and I won't go into great detail about how the Latter-day Saints reacted to Captain Allen's request, but suffice it to say, they said, in effect, no way, we're not going until President Brigham Young went among the saints and said, no, we should do this. This will be a great benefit to the church. So Azariah and his father signed up to march with the Mormon battalion, leaving behind, Azariah did, his mother and his sisters and a brother, all of them encamped in the wilderness on the Missouri River at a place we now call Winter Quarters. That was the summer of 1846. Well, the hardship and the difficulty of one of the longest military infantry marches in American military history was the Mormon Battalion. They marched all the way from the Missouri River down through on the Santa Fe Trail, down through New Mexico, down into Mexico, and then turned west and went into California. They arrived in California in January of 1847. Now, by that time, the war with Mexico was pretty much resolved. And so in July of 1847, Azariah Smith received an honorable discharge from the United States Army. He said, quote, we drew $31.50 to the man yesterday and now our own men. So they were discharged. Well, from there now, this is July of 1847. Where is Azariah's family? They could be anywhere from the Missouri River to somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. No one really knew for sure where the family was. Nevertheless, Azariah and his father joined a group of men. They marched north up into the Sierra Nevadas and somewhere near present-day Donner Pass, they started over the mountains on their way to the Salt Lake Valley when they were met by messengers from the Salt Lake Valley who said to the battalion boys, don't come. Don't come over the mountains this season. There is no food in the valley to support you. Stay in California, work, earn money, and come next season. Well, that Nyanta broke Azariah's heart. He wanted to see his mother and his family. But obediently, he decided to remain behind. His father took the four remaining horses, nearly all of the provisions, and continued on to find and take care of Azariah's mother and the rest of the family. Azariah turned back to find work. It just so happened he went to work for a man named John Sutter who was building a mill on the American River. And you know the story. January 1847, 
gold was discovered on the American River. We know that the man who actually discovered the gold was not a Latter-day Saint, but it was a Latter-day Saint crew that was there with them. Azariah describes being there in the outbreak of the discovery of gold, seeing the gold lying in the stream. And it was there for the picking up. But all Azariah could think about was getting home to his family. He said, my heart leaps with the expectation of getting home in the spring. Well, you know what happened. With the announcement of gold in the summer of 1848 and confirmed by the President of the United States, by the following season, the gold rush of 1849 was on. And the irony of this, Azariah was one of the first men on the ground. Him, Henry Bigler, and others were the first men on the ground. Gold was there for the picking. And yet, at the first opportunity, Azariah pocketed the gold that he had found and left the rest behind and set out to find his family in the Salt Lake Valley. Thursday. September 28th, 1848, about 2 p.m., I arrived in Salt Lake City, and after riding considerable, I found father, mother, sisters, and brother, and they are all well. My heart feels to rejoice that I once more have arrived home, end of quote. Azariah Smith lived out his days in the Salt Lake Valley with no regrets. Now to me, that's a hero of the restoration. Second story. This story was given to me by Dr. Brent Topp, former Dean of Religious Instruction at BYU. And I'm not sure where he got it from, but it's one of those pioneer stories that just just gets you so, so excited. It's based on the recollections in the family history of Raymond Smith Jones, and he tells the story of his ancestors, Stanford and Arabella Smith. They were part of the great Hole in the Rock expedition. Gerald Lund has written a book about it. But this is the story. January 26, 1880, Joseph Stanford Smith and his wife, Arabella, stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and looked down through a treacherous, narrow little crevice in the rocks called Hole in the Rock that was to get them down to the Colorado River where they would ferry across, go up the other side, and continue on their journey. This treacherous place was their main crossing that would cut off many, many miles in reaching their destination in the four corners of Utah. Well, Stanford was down below helping to ferry the wagons across. And one by one, as the day went on, the wagons got down the chute, across the river, and on over the Colorado and on with their journey. But as the last wagon came down, Stanford commented, where's my wagon? He made his way back up to the top and discovered that his wagon had been pushed back, overlooked, and forgotten. Stanford's face, according to the account, 
flushed with rage. He threw his hat on the ground, stomped on it, as was his habit when he was angry, and said, quote, with me down there helping get their wagons on the raft, I thought someone would bring my wagon down. Dratum. I love that, that phrase, dratum. I think we should bring that back. His wife, Belle, she was called, said, I've got the horses harnessed and all things packed. Stanford took the old mule and tied him, old Nig was his name, and tied him to the back axle of the wagon to slow it down. You have to understand that hole in the rock is a narrow chute cut in the rock. It's on solid rock, and it's extremely steep. And wagons are not like cars with four-wheel brakes and reliable traction. If it's too steep, the horses, the animals, can't hold the wagon back. So he tied old Nig on the back as ballast to slow the wagon down. And he brought the wagon to the edge and then cross-locked the wheels with chains so that they wouldn't turn. And then he walked and looked down the crevice, down the chute, down the hole. Hand in hand, Joseph and Arabella stood there and looked at what was in front of them. Ten feet of loose sand on top of rock. Then a rocky pitch as steep as the roof of a house and barely as wide as the wagon. And below that, a dizzying chute down to the landing place. It was that first drop of 150 feet that frightened Stanford. I'm afraid we can't make it, he exclaimed. And Bell said, but we've got to make it. If only we had a few men to hold the wagon back. I'll do the holding back, said Bell, on old Nig's lines. Arabella took the children moved him back over to a safe place and said, stay here, dears, until father, until papa comes back to get you. Stanford crawled up in the wagon where he had control of the team, braced his legs against the dashboard, gigged the team, and started down the chute. The first lurch as the wagon began to pick up speed nearly jerked Belle off her feet. She dug in her heels to hold her balance. Old Nig was thrown to his haunches, trying to stay on his feet. Arabella raced behind Old Nig, holding on to the lines with desperate strength. Old Nig was finally jerked completely over and onto his side and dragged down the chute, quote, with a shrill neigh of terror. Bell lost her balance, jerked off of her feet, and went sprawling after old Nig. She was blinded by the sand which streamed into her face. She gritted her teeth and tried to hang on to the lines. A jagged rock ripped through her dress, tore her flesh, and hot pain ran up her leg from heel to hip. The wagon struck a huge boulder. The impact jerked her to her feet and flung her up against the rock on the side of the cliff, and down the wagon went, picking up speed. Finally, at the bottom of the chute, the wagon finally came to a stop, still in one piece. 
Stanford jumped off and ran to the back to survey the damage. His first sight was of old Nig, bloodied, bruised, and barely alive. And then he saw Bell, still holding on to the lines. Blood streaming from her leg, covered with dirt from head to toe. They had made it. They were safe. They were safe. Stanford ran to his wife. Darling, will you be all right, he said. Of course I will, she said. Just leave me here and go as fast as you can and get the children. I'll hurry, Stanford said as he started up the hill. He began the steep climb up the incline that he had just come down. And he slowed down and stopped. He had driven a wagon down that fearful crevice and dragged his wife all the way down. God bless her gallant heart, he cried. He kicked the rocks at his feet and with tears streaming down his face, lifted his hat in salute to Arabella, his wife. There's so much meaning in that story for me. How many wives and how many mothers have followed their husbands down the hole in the rock, figuratively or literally followed their husbands as they have been called or as they have been summoned to go all around the world and endure everything for the kingdom of God's sake, or sometimes just for the crazy idea of a husband that she loved. God bless all of those gallant women. This next story. If you've been to Nauvoo, you probably have seen, still standing, restored, the Scoville Bakery. That bakery belonged to Lucius N. Scoville. Lucius Scoville was among the saints there in Nauvoo. But in the spring of 1846, the Latter-day Saints were on their way out of Nauvoo. Brigham Young and the Twelve had left in February of 46 and started west over the Rocky Mountains in search of a new home. Lucius Scoville had stayed behind, but he was not about to be left behind. Were the Twelve left in something of an orderly fashion, organized into companies, those who came out in the spring came pell-mell in an effort to catch up with the Twelve. Well, Lucius was among them. May the 6th, 1846, just as he's preparing to leave Nauvoo, he receives a mission call to go to England. Can you imagine? You've got 1,300 miles of wilderness ahead of you, a destination you don't know where. And you've got a family, and now you, as a father, are being called to go to England. Would you go? I'm not sure that I could. Eight days later, Lucius crossed the Mississippi River with his wife and his children and started on his long trek to catch up with the Twelve 
and find their new home over the Rocky Mountains in the West. Over the next two weeks, they journeyed slowly across Iowa. Latter-day Saint refugees were scattered everywhere over the Iowa prairies. And then, May 30th, 1846, is a day that Lucius's family, and probably his posterity, will never forget. It was early in the morning. Three men came into camp just at breakfast time. These three men were going back to Nauvoo on church business. As they stated their destination, Lucius felt what we have all felt, that familiar tug of the Lord's call, the call to duty. And he resolved then and there that he would go on his mission to England. It was, and I quote, it was a painful duty to leave my family to go into the wilderness and I turn and go the other way. Could you do it? Nonetheless, Lucius Scoville was determined to fulfill that mission. Quote, if it cost me all that I had on this earth. End of quote. He took leave of his family, and there's a lot more to the story than I have time to tell you now, but he took leave of his family and without purse or script, went to England and served as a missionary, while his wife and his children followed the brethren and made their way west. Of that day, Lucius wrote this, never since I have been in this church have I seen anything to compare with this trial? To think of leaving my wife and children to go into the wilderness without my being there to look after them and they weeping to think of me leaving them and going to a far distant country. But I left them, bidding them Godspeed. By this time, he said, I was completely overcome by my feelings and could not keep from bursting into a flood of tears, and thus I left them and started on my mission for England. End of quote. Now, I don't care who you are or what you believe, but that, to me, is a hero of the Restoration. Some may call it crazy. I call it obedient. I call it the law of sacrifice. And it is sacrifice that brings forth the blessings of heaven. I've met Lucius Scoville's posterity. They have told me about him and their feelings for their revered ancestor. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.